Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Production. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host, Hall of Famer, America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan. And this is our flagship show, Coach and Kernan, episode 216. We've got a treat for you today, a repeat guest tandem. Um, and we'll get to them in a, in a second. But uh, first, I want to welcome Kevin back to the show, back to your show, and uh, wish you a very early happy birthday. I know your birthday's coming up. And um, I've been out on the road a little bit uh, with our one-on-one group here and want to just kind of have you catch me up. What are you seeing out there in the game right now? I know a couple yeah. great articles again this week. Yeah, Dave, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Baseball's interesting. Uh, I'm going to c- keep the preamble uh, short here today because, you know, our two guests are out there. They see things, including perfect games. So uh, I'm seeing uh, I'm seeing some really good things about baseball. And, of course, I'm seeing some bad things. One little point I'll make. I just, you know, the Angels are in a fight for, um, you know, that last playoff spot. So I watched, the, you know, I watched the part of their game. They lost nine to seven. Both run the two runs. Two runs came in on wild pitches with the with the catcher cemented into the ground. I just don't get it. I'm I'm almost beyond my wits with this stuff. Um, the analytic people they want to always have it their way, but it's when it's proving that something they do is wrong, they don't change. And I think you're seeing a living embodiment of that too with the Mets. What's going on with Cohen? Cohen, uh, you know, he spent all the money in the world and it ain't working. So it's, it still comes back to baseball. That's what I love about our guests. They are so baseball centric. And with that, we'll get get right to them, and you can introduce them, Dave. Okay, great. Yeah, our, our two guests right now. I love the projects that they're on because it's as, as if they're putting baseball in the center how it should be. And they're giving us a 360-degree view over time, different perspectives, different paradigms on, on baseball. So we have the co-founders of Grassroots Baseballs of 2019, the authors of Route 66, which is the book that sits on my coffee table. Everybody that comes in the house wants to read through it. I don't let them touch the pages. So I turn the pages for them because it's too valuable a book for me. <laughs> um, currently on a three-year journey to promote women in baseball globally, which which is phenomenal. Uh, you know, want to reintroduce to our show First, one of the greatest storytellers with a lens, uh, decades in the game, has seen the game and given even me a different perspective on how to view the game. Um, Gene Fruth, Gene, welcome back to our show. And um, also, this guy's been around the game a little bit too, 34 years plus in professional baseball, best known probably for his time with the Baseball Hall of Fame as the executive director for it, uh, Jeff Idelson. Jeff, welcome, Gene. Welcome to you two back to our show. That's great to be back. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Dave and Kevin. Great to be with you. I want to get started as kind of, you know, Gene, I'll throw this one to you to start. I mean, we've obviously have a a paradigm shift in baseball right now. Uh, 20 women playing college baseball right now. We have a young lady we're helping out, Lillian Martineau out of Connecticut. She's on a journey to get a college scholarship. Uh, We have, you know, Olivia Perchardo, Brown University was the very first one. I have two daughters right now that have helped us and we're about to join your journey, your three-year initiative to promote women in the game. We started our own women's baseball program with one-on-one, our, our grassroots group here. So thank you for the push there. But want to start at where our baseball season started, the WBC Classic, Gene. Um, you caught the passion of this event. Um, you caught uh, – and the one that – a lot of them drew me to the game, but um, there was a particular moment with Otani, the emotion he showed. But you caught the Mexican fans. I mean, it, it was just a phenomenal job by you, um, As in, that's an understatement, but – Talk to our audience a little bit about the importance of the World Baseball Classic uh, to baseball itself, but how you captured it with the lens. Well, for sure, baseball itself. I mean, what that did for baseball, that type of 
that brand of baseball was just so exciting. All you kept hearing is, why can't baseball be like this all the time? I mean, it was just so exciting. Every game, the, the everybody playing in it was playing for country pride, and you could just see how much it mattered, like what was on the line for them, going back to their country and bringing back that trophy, and how, you know, just just the intensity of really every play and every game. And then the fans in the stands, their country pride, it was just so festive and exciting and such a high level of play and intensity. I, documenting it was just terrific. You know, it really just woke us all up to baseball in this way that, uh, you know, brought the fun back in the game. It's why we want to watch it. And um, the, the Mexican fans for sure came out strong. The Japan, you know, Fans were incredible. Um, and just the emotions, you know, and not only the emotions of victory, but the emotions of defeat and seeing, you know, it's action and then reaction. And, you know, at the game end, and uh, probably the most, one of the most intense moments for me is watching, I was watching Columbia be eliminated and what, you know, and just the, the reaction to those players and players in the dugout crying, uh, you know, and, um, just, just that intensity and what it meant to them. Just, you know, and the, the, the kid who cries, you know, it's the, it's the one who cares the most. You know, we see it in high school. We see it in college. And the intensity of that was, uh, was just really um, overwhelming and encouraging for baseball. I think it just renewed everybody's interest and excitement in the game. Yeah. Now, as, as an outsider looking in at, a, for instance, a country like Japan, we see them as stoic we see them as all business-like. They approach the game um, in that type of fashion. Uh, talk, talk to the moments up to, you know, you, you caught a great picture of Otani, Trout, and then actually after the postgame, the, the celebration with the manager, what they do with the manager. Incredible, right? I mean, there's Otani, and I've documented Otani, you know, during regular season, and you don't get much from him. I mean, you, it's, he's, he is stoic, you know, that's, and it was a new Otani when he was playing for Japan and the emotion that he was showing, even when he was in the dugout and watching the game when something good happened, the way he was hugging and cheering and smiling. And it was, it was incredible. It made incredible pictures. And then my gosh, that ending. I mean, I was in a position and I went, wait a minute, Otani's going to come out and close out this game. I've got to move and I've got to get in a different position because <laughs> it just like occurred to me, like he's coming and sure enough he did. And luckily I did move and just watching, I mean, the last at bat is in trout with Otani. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. And then his excitement was just, the celebration was just incredible. I mean, it was really, I mean, it was much better celebration than I shot the world series. The, you know, the, the season before and just seeing that celebration. And then, yeah, the ending, I, you know, and I was on the huddle of all the players after they got the trophy and they were on the stage. Uh, and luckily I went up and was using a little bit of a long lens, not way up, but up enough. And I'm on the huddle looking really for Otani to see what else there might be. And I thought we were getting to the end of the celebration and up shoots the manager out of the middle of that huddle. And yes, I, you know, I do know that they throw the manager up as, you know, part of the celebration, but really I wasn't thinking about it at that moment. And when he shot out of the middle of that huddle and I was luckily my lens was on it, I was just 
thrilled. And like that became the picture. So it was just fantastic for, for me and being able to documenting and tell the story in that way of action, reaction, fans, the celebration, all of it was just so intense and, and wonderful. Yeah. And I, and I thought the the coverage of the WBC is a nice lead into your guys' three-year journey. And, and Jeff, I'll throw this one to you. You know, you're, you're getting, you're scheduled to go to Canada, Cuba, Dominican Republic, J- Japan, Uganda, and Europe. But if I'm correct in saying this, you guys have boots on the ground in, in pretty much every country right now. This three-year initiative to promote women in sports, you've been around the top 1% of the men in the game of baseball. Why is this paradigm shift so important so uh, right now uh, for the game? Well, that's a great question, uh, Dave. And the women's game is really starting to take off in, in a big way in the United States, as we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the door has opened and closed for decades, decades and decades and decades, going back to, you know, Maria Pepe in 1972, challenging Little League and even before that. Uh, but the game around the globe has a, a stronger foothold in some countries. And we feel the time is right now to, to show the uh, ascent of the game in the U.S. is juxtaposed to, with what's going on around the globe. And you mentioned some countries where the, where the women's game is so much further developed, such as Japan and also Australia, uh, where uh, the game is introduced early. Uh, there are girls teams all the way down to elementary school, up through high school. There's a, there are leagues for them to play in after high school. And then uh, they're, they're a powerhouse in the World Cup as well. So, uh, you know, with success stories uh, in places like Japan and Australia, then you have emerging stories in, in, in other countries where the game is just starting out, uh, such as Uganda, uh, France, uh, England, the Netherlands. Uh, the point being is that the women's game is starting to take off in a serious way. And um, Gene and I spent, uh, have spent last year and this year uh, documenting what's been going on in the United States from T-ball all the way up through the AAGPBL. Uh, college, high school, and are really excited at this point and juncture to start to show how the game has roots in other countries and show how they are all, how they're all connective and how they will feed off each other, these different countries, as the game in the United States continues to blossom. Yeah, we, we look forward to that. I know, what, as I mentioned in the pre-show, we're, we, have, we have now started a, a women's program, a young girls program for baseball here in Myrtle Beach to go with our one-on-one. So we're excited to join that, that initiative um, Gene, I'm going to bounce back to you now. I'm playing ping pong here a little bit. Um, you know, with this paradigm shift, you guys are obviously going to be a, a major educator for the world, we hope, with this. And my question is, I, I saw your coverage of the Women Club Championships out in Compton, and I thought that was successful. So I, I guess, I mean, do we need to get to the point where there is a woman in Major League Baseball as a player to, be, to have this initiative deemed successful, or are we successful now? Yeah, I, I, I don't see that as the goal. I mean, there's certainly women out there where their goal is to play Major League Baseball, and I think that's great. And will there be a woman in Major League Baseball? Well, probably. I mean, I think eventually it's going to happen one way or another, however that happens. But that's certainly not the goal. The goal is just what happened in Myrtle Beach. This You said there's a now you have a girls program with one-on-one. So is that all girls playing baseball? Yes. It's a, yeah, and, and I think that's really what women and girls dominantly, that's what they want to see. You know, we have girls playing on an all boys team. And I don't think the girls are there playing on that all boys team because they're trying to make some sort of a 
um, spotlight on themselves or, you know, a, a statement about gender. I don't think they want to be highlighted like that. They're there because it's their only option if they want to play baseball. And opening up options for girls to play baseball, I think, is what women and girls are looking for. When girls play against other girls, it's magical. So when they have that yeah, chance, and, and we like, give like them the that situation chance, in Compton with the women club championships, just a- uh, talk to some other successes that are out there, whether it's U.S. or, or global, that you've witnessed. You're documenting right now in your your journey around the country. Um, you know, Kelsey Whitmore. I look. I mean, look what she's doing uh, with. Um, you know, the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. She was the first woman to play, record a hit, uh, first to pitch in the Atlantic League. So she's in the minors. I mean, the Baseball for All program, they have a thousand girls in their program with teams all around the country and they have an international connection as well. They're going to have their, um, what is it called, Jeff? The uh, yeah. Yeah, their uh, national championships. National championships um, are coming up next month, and they'll have a, a thousand girls at that program. Is that the one so in Kentucky? Just, that's the one in Kentucky. Awesome, yeah. You know, and I think it really is exciting to see women facing other women, girls being able to play other. They see the Kelsey Whitmore. They see managing the minor league team for the Yankees. And in our backyard, Alyssa Nackin, the first woman coaching in the major leagues, 20 women, like you said, playing collegiate baseball around the country. So these young girls in these programs, you know, they see it. And as Perry Barber, longtime female umpire says, if you can see it, you can be it. So now girls are seeing it in Japan. There are a lot of little girls who, when you get that question of what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, there's a lot of little girls who say, I want to be a professional baseball player because they see it in Japan. Yeah. My daughter's one of those, our oldest daughter. And uh, I've got one more question. And Jeff, I'll toss this to you. And, and Jean, feel free to jump in because I know you did some interviews with uh, with her. But, you know, World War II, we saw All-American Girls Baseball League happen. And we saw women go from softball to baseball uh, as part of an initiative as we fought in the war. I'm going to throw a name at you, Jeff, and I want to talk you to talk about her significance in the game of baseball and, and some of the accomplishments she's had. And name is Lois Youngman. Oh, Lois is just a treat. Uh, we, uh, we had the fortune, the great fortune, Dave and Kevin, of spending a day with Lois in Eugene, Oregon, where she's from. And uh, she's just a treasure. Jean. Uh, interviews uh, out in social media. But this, you know, this is a young, this was a, a woman who grew up in Ohio and, uh, uh, you know, saw, saw, was, went to a game, uh, she went to a, an AAGPBL game with her cousin and decided that that would be for her, uh, went to a tryout, uh, had great success at the tryout and uh, ended up playing for four years. Uh, she played for two Hall of Fame managers, which is amazing, Mac, Max Carey and Jimmy Fox. Uh, and, and has great stories about that. But this is someone who used her four years in the AGPBL to put herself through college. She went to Kent State, uh, where Thurman Munson and, and Jean Michael had roots. Uh, she went from there to get her master's in, in uh, physical education at Michigan State. And then she got her PhD at Ohio State and spent 35 years at the University of Oregon in Eugene, uh, uh, ushering in Title IX. 
she was really successful. She caught Gene Fouts' uh, second perfect game, uh, which was really timely to talk about yesterday uh, with D- uh, Domingo Herman's perfect game. But this is, a, this is someone who is a, a great example of uh, uh, perseverance and uh, using the platform of having played baseball to help to grow the game for women. Uh, and we're looking forward to seeing her in Kenosha next month at the AAG PBL reunion, uh, where Jean is going to be the keynote speaker. Well, that'd be great. And, and Jean, you had time interviewing with her. What was your experience with her like? A lot of energy, I heard. Up, oh, did we lose Jean? Jean, did we lose you? Jeff, maybe you can speak to that uh, with the experience with interviewing her. Understood that uh, Lois comes to. Lost them both. Jeff, great answer on Lois. Uh, I've read a lot about her, and and I think you paint a great picture of what she meant to the women's game. Uh, Gene, you had an opportunity to interview her uh, close close counter as well. What did you learn about Lois? I heard she had a ton of energy. Oh, she really did. I mean, I was embarrassed when I said, let's take a break for lunch. And she said, oh no, let's just keep going. And she went nonstop. We interviewed her at the field where there's a, a field named after her in her hometown um, and at her home in different locations. And she just had incredible energy all the way through and just so many great stories and, and, and really cares about the women's game on, on a deep level. And she, she's helped so many and she's really just this trailblazer and that um, promotes the game and really supports young women in the game today. And um, really grateful to have her. It's, it's certainly a lot more than what she did back in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. She just continues to be a champion for the game today. And um, and she has a great sense of humor, too. She said, well, yeah, back then, you know, they always said a woman's place is at home. But for me, it was at first, second, third and home. So, yeah. <laughs> But she was just a terrific interview and terrific champion. I'll be seeing her again in Kenosha. We're having um, I've been invited to Jeff and I've been invited to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League um, reunion. So, uh, that should be a lot of fun to see all the ladies there again. And, and it's more than just them. There's so many women that come and support the program. Well, I think that's great. And I'll, I'll, one more question. I'll segue to Kevin on this, you know, Lois, obviously is a great ambassador for the game, the, the game of the past. Do we have more Lois's out there that are, that are high energy to try to drive this next generation of women? Oh, yeah. Was that for Gene or me? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. You go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. No, there certainly is. I mean, there are women making who have already made great strides like Lois has. You think of the Janet Marie Smiths of the world, uh, who's done a great job. Kim Eng is uh, now running the Myrlands and I think doing an, an incredible job and, you know, known Kim for decades. So, yeah, Lois is one great example. There are others in the AGPBL. Uh, Susa Pay has started uh, the All-American Girls League down in Florida to try to start uh, get more traction for women. So there are definitely pioneers uh, that don't want to be called pioneers like Perry Barber, but there are role models out there who have lived this, who certainly are part of uh, helping elevate the game and, and grow the game for women. I love that. Kevin, I'll pass it on to you. Yeah, I'm looking here at a card I have, of, and I remember interviewing her, uh, Mammy Peanut Johnson. Uh, 
date. Uh, Jeff, have you ever met her? Did you ever meet her through the years before she passed? I did. I met Mamie uh, up in Cooperstown when uh, after uh, Monet Davis, who was the uh, the first girl to uh, pitch and win a game at the Little League World Series, uh, after she completed that feat, I believe it was 2014, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Monet and Mamie both came to Cooperstown and I had an opportunity to spend wow. some time with her and, and learn about everything she did uh, uh, as a, a woman playing, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s. It was just tremendous. Yeah, and, and and that's what's great about these stories. And, and Gene, I have a question. It's a little bit, a little bit different, but I'm just curious because um, you're talking about you know the the women and baseball and things like that. And what about for you? I'm wondering, as a photographer, being a woman photographer, what was it like early on? Was there, uh, you know, I I remember going back to my early days in uh, Patterson News. Uh, we had a wonderful photographer named Linda Catalfo, and then she went eventually went to the New York Daily News. But there weren't that many women photographers when I started. Uh, what was it like for you, and how has that changed? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of women photographers when I started uh, as well. I was lucky enough to start shooting professional sports on the West Coast, and the photographers that I was I was surrounded with who helped me and became my mentors were very open and very welcoming to me. And I really owe them a lot. And it was all, it was Michael Zagaris from the Oakland A's, Brad Mangin. Yeah, Michael Zagaris, I I just shot, we shot the perfect game together just the other night. And uh, shooting by his side brings me such pleasure. Michael's 78 years old. And he was uh, my first mentor in professional sports, um, both with the San Francisco 49ers, Oakland A's, and shooting Bay Area sports. And um, and they were very welcoming to me and I had a lot of questions and I was very green and I'm very lucky to have the experience that I had, but, and, and not all women who started in sports during that time had that same experience. Um, so I was lucky in that way, but now the women that are coming into sports photography and there's so many of them, team photographers, Getty photographers, what, you know, the wires, um, it's just really, uh, encouraging and heartening to see. Um, I also teach sports photography um, through these workshops all around the country. And now I'm getting about half women in these sports photography workshops. Yeah. It's really just about half and half. And it's just so great to see. And then that's the thing. It's with any industry, you know, if you have a hundred percent of the population that's available, Mm -hmm. well, everybody's just going to get better and it's going to make your industry strive. So um, it's just, it's just terrific. And Gene, I want you to address one other thing too, because I, I don't think people realize the physical nature of the job. Um, t- t- it, it, it's a tough job. You're carrying around a lot of equipment and just the, that alone, uh, uh, the, the weightlifting aspect of photography is pretty, pretty interesting. And I think you gave us a little indication. You got to be ready for anything too. You do have to be ready for anything. And yeah, I mean, if I chose landscape photography, I could have one nice wide angle with a camera. I wouldn't, I I don't know what I was thinking when I chose sports, but yeah, I mean, having, you know, at all times I'm shooting with three bodies and three different lenses and, and anybody who's like seen sports photography and they know it's those big 400 and 600 lenses. I was lucky enough. I switched from one brand. I was shooting a brand and then I switched to Sony and I switched. One of the big reasons I switched was the weight of the 400 lens mm. was half the weight. 
And when you're my size carrying that, it was such a big deal to me. But, you know, carrying them on airplanes, putting them and you can't check it. You have to put it in the overhead compartment, obviously. So you're lifting that over your head. And um, but it's a good workout and I eat a lot of pizza. So I feel like it's a nice balance. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I like about the show. We really get to dig deep sometimes on professions because people just see it and they don't understand it. But but just give someone an idea too how much uh, that a lens like that may cost. Oh, uh, probably around fifteen thousand for the for the four hundred lens, and then you and then the body on top of it. But the technology makes a difference. You know, when I teach classes, I say you know you don't need the top equipment, but buy the best that you can buy because technology mm. makes a difference. I mean, my new camera, the new Sony camera I shoot with, shoots thirty frames per second, and I probably shouldn't tell you that because I want you to think I'm a genius <laughs> when I capture the action, but. The gear does help. As Michael Zagaris likes to say, you don't go to the race. Oh, that's great. Well, and, and since you brought him up, you know, I've had the good fortune, obviously, meeting you years ago in, in Oakland. But give us a little, give without getting too deep, but just give the, the listeners a little. He's such a unique personality, Michael Zagaris. Just give us a little uh, background on him and maybe some of the, uh, you know, he's been everywhere with everyone. Yeah, Michael Zagaris, he's uh, he's an interesting character. And um, you no one, like you said, he's your mentor. Just give everyone a little look into uh, Michael's background, his history, his ability to uh, blend with any personality and his uh, enthusiasm for the job. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't be the photographer I am today if it wasn't for Michael Zagaris, otherwise known as the Z-Man in, the, in our baseball, football, and music world. And Z's been around, um, well, gosh, he's been shooting the Oakland A's since the 70s and the San Francisco 49ers. He just put out a book of football. It was 50 years of shooting the NFL. And before that, and even during that, he was a rock and roll uh, rock and roll photographer. He traveled with the Who for a year, the Rolling Stones. I mean, he's just absolutely incredible. He wanted to be in politics. He wanted to be the president of the United States. And he, at some point, I think, and he uh, he was working for Bobby Kennedy. And when um, Bobby Kennedy got shot, he got out of politics completely. He and just turned a corner and started shooting music and sports. And uh, he's an incredible storyteller and, and his memory for the, and the, his knowledge of the game, his knowledge of music, his knowledge of sports is just absolutely incredible. And when he talks to a player today, he knows the player's father and where he played, where they went to college, every coach. I mean, there's no one in the game that he doesn't know. And they're the history behind um, uh, where they played and, you know, what they did and where they went to school. And besides that, he just has an incredible gift for connecting with people. So I learned how to be a sports photographer in a completely different way because of him. What happened mostly in the game for me, because he was my mentor, was before the game even began. It was in front of the dugout, the Oakland A's. It's the only 
dugout left in, in Major League Baseball that doesn't have a railing in front of it. And I love it's, it. I love it. Yes. It's incredible access, right, to the to the players. It's a real connection. That railing changes everything. And mm -hmm. Z just sits on the steps and chats with all those players and coaches. And that's what I learned. Everything was shooting with a wide angle and connecting and watching players have fun and interacting and the stories that were told. I mean, I wish I had a recorder for all those stories that they were telling him he was telling them. I mean, and that's how I learned. I thought that was what sports photography was everywhere. I mean, if I tried to do that at Yankee Stadium, oh. I'd be kicked out of <laughs> I'd be kicked off the field in seconds, you know. And as I started to travel, I realized, wow, what happens in Oakland is really special because you don't get to do that anywhere else in any major league ballpark. And the connections that are there run so deep. And the players enjoy it too. I mean, I'm so happy that we had a perfect game in Oakland and because the pictures I was able to get and capture and the moments and everybody's just so much looser when they're at that ballpark. Well, that's a great point. And, uh, and your, your, the photos are just phenomenal. You know, I was looking at them on Facebook and everything and, uh, you really did capture everything and, and, and it's good for Herman. You know, he's, he's had some troubles in his career. I think he's tried to clean himself up a little bit and, uh, you know, to see, you know, going back to the old original Don Larson line about the imperfect man pitching the perfect game. So I think I think your photos are phenomenal and the group photos with the, the Yankees seem happier. And that's what I always noticed. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Gene, because I always enjoyed doing the Yankee West Coast trip if it included Oakland, because I always had incredible access because, quite frankly, there's nowhere for the players to hide because it's right. not like all, all these other modern clubhouses. And and the players are looser there. And when even doing BP, the weather's fine. It's not like San Francisco when you're freezing, you know, you're freezing all the time sometimes. And uh, But it, it's nice and relaxed. The players are calm there. Uh, and with the Yankees, Reggie would always show up. I don't know, if, you know, obviously he's not working for the Yankees anymore. So, you know, that's changed too. But having Reggie there would just – be like the Michael Zagaris thing. It would just open up people to, to, to conversations. And that's what a great photographer does. And that's, that, that's why it's so important to have that. So I have to ask with Oakland losing the team, just give us some thoughts on, um, you know, those dedicated fans of Oakland who are just unbelievable and, and what it means to lose a team like that. No, we just had uh, at the ballpark that the fans organized themselves to have a reverse boycott, <laughs> and, you know, all these thousands and thousands of fans showed up for this game. And it was so exciting to see the Coliseum filled like that again. And they were all wearing shirts saying, you know, sell. And you know, they just were passionate. They were passionate about, you know, th their team and Oakland. And it is, it's crushing for them to lose. Mm. You know, they lost the Warriors. They lost the Raiders. And to lose the Oakland A's, and I think it's how many years has that ballpark been there? 52 years maybe now since 1968. Wow. Yeah, maybe longer. Um, it's just uh, – and there's no place like it. And I can tell you when we no lose place it, like it. No place like it. It's going to be sad. I mean, I was looking at the young uh, Yankee, uh, Osvaldo, Cabr Osvaldo Cabrera, and there was drummers up in the, and you know, the drummers that are in the outfield and yeah. he was looking up and he's pointing to the other pointing and talking to the other players. And he's, he's like, he loves seeing the drums. I mean, the players love it. You're right. They feel looser. We would have never did a team shot like that where they just laid on the grass and wanted to get a team shot on the field. It was like shooting a little league team instead of the Yankees. 
it's you fun. took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say that was like a little league shot. I've never seen the Yankees so happy and putting their, and their guard down. That, that's a classic shot, and I don't know what you're going to do with it. But um, Yankee fans should really try to get a hold of that because it gives them. And you know what? I, I think it could help the Yankees kind of relax a little, just play baseball, and and so that's 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 another important factor of just relaxing and doing your job. Yeah, and you see that, and then you're reminded it's a kid's game and mm. how, how great it is. The, uh, I wanted to ask Jeff, too, because, again, I, I like to go areas where other people don't go sometimes. And all my time up in Cooperstown, how great Jeff was to me and everything uh, and through the years and how he's still connected and Josh Roberts, obviously, the great job they did. I just sent Chris Vitale, the Ball 9 uh, Editor, he missed because Josh was in Europe, but uh, in England. But uh, he, he spent a couple of days up there, had a great time. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, Jeff, and, and nobody ever talks about this, so I want you—you probably never been asked this question. One of the things I love about Cooperstown is the the the. Uh, I'm kind of I got a little bit of a green thumb. I love the gardening aspect of what's all around the the the, the museum and everything else. The uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, that aspect that nobody thinks about and, and the beautiful gardens and everything. Oh, it's a great question, Kevin. And you're right; I've never been asked that, so I could check that off my never been asked list. Uh, 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 <laughs> but you know what gets lost sometimes? You know, you think about it. You know, the family comes up from New York or flies in from another. Uh, state and they uh, get into Cooperstown and your focus, of course, is the Hall of Fame because that's what you're going for. And you and you kind of like get uh, tunnel vision maybe a little bit just because uh, you want to get to the to Mecca, you know, to the Hall of Fame. But mm -hmm. that is really uh, Cooperstown is a gorgeous community that uh, is a lot like stepping into a Norman Rockwell painting. It really is. It's a it's 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 classic Main Street America uh, with uh, 1,800 residents, a flagpole in the middle of Main Street, and a Hall of Fame right next to it. Uh, so it doesn't get any more Americana than that. It's also a massive uh, uh, dairy farming area and has a lot of gardens, and you're absolutely right. And uh, it, it, just the, uh, the there are hanging geraniums from every light post that are beautiful that's and colorful. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah the, the, the orange geraniums that they have uh, hanging from each of the old... Uh, old style lampposts. Uh, everybody there takes care of their gardens. There's great pride in their gardens. So there's a massive farmer's market that goes on every weekend. So it really is a place of, of innate beauty to go with the Hall of Fame. And speaking of that, I, uh, you have to give everyone just a little peek of what it's like being on the, uh, the back porch at the Otisaga Hotel. Oh, my goodness. As, uh, as, uh, Don uh, Sutton told me it's like all of your baseball cards come into life. That's what it's like. Um, the bat, the Otisaga Resort Hotel is the is the big, beautiful hotel on Otsego Lake, uh, where all the Hall of Famers stay during Hall of Fame weekend. For those of your listeners who aren't aware, and uh, it's a sight to be seen. Where they've got these beautiful uh, white tall backed rocking chairs that uh, overlook the lake. They overlook the 18th hole of Leatherstocking Golf Course. There's a fire pit down below. Uh, where you can have cocktails and you look to your left and you see Johnny Bench. You look to your right, you see Randy Johnson. There's Ozzie Smith doing a, a flip at the other end. Of, well, maybe not today, but there's Ozzie Smith at the other end of the veranda and it's 50 Hall of Famers just hanging out. And what you realize is these guys love getting together. They love the fraternity. They love talking about how long the homers were and, they, you know, another 25 feet get added every year, it seems, to how far they went or uh, well, how successful a play was. And uh, 
it's it's truly the epicenter of baseball stardom for one weekend on the calendar every year. And one more for Jeff, uh, and I'll wrap it up with Gene. But um, it, you guys being in San Francisco, you know, Willie Mays just had his birthday. Jeff, you got to give us some insight into what Willie is like when he when he's at the Hall of Fame. Oh well, I just, it's funny you say that, Kevin, because I was down last week and spent uh, three hours with Willie. I brought him some lunch, and uh, wow. he wanted to talk about the entire 1950s Giants infield and uh, everything else under the sun. So he's very much still dialed into the game. When he would come to Cooperstown, he was in heaven. He absolutely loved it. He loved being with the guys. Uh, he's not able to travel back anymore, unfortunately, because of mm-hmm. uh, of some health issues at 92. But uh, his favorite thing to do was to uh, be in the parade, which you're familiar with. There's a great Main Street parade on Saturday of induction weekend. And as the parade concludes, uh, the players get out of the back of these trucks and they go into the Hall of Fame for a reception and what I like to call their home away from home. And Willie would immediately beeline into the gift shop. That's what he wanted to do is go to the gift shop of all things. And he loves watches. And he'd buy the, the three or four times that I was with him in the Hall of Fame, he easily bought a dozen watches every time he went and would hand them out to people. So Willie loved Cooperstown. He loves what it stands for. And um, he is excited about this year's induction. And he wants me to come back and see him again after induction to let him know how all the guys are doing. To fill him in. Yeah, because he, he, he it really is a community that's unlike any baseball community. And uh, and and you guys do a great job with all that. And Gene, you you're always you you you've shot a lot in Cooperstown too. Just give us some thoughts about what you like to do when you when you're shooting there in, in Cooperstown. I, I I absolutely love shooting. And induction is fun to shoot, but you know the induction is really not what it's about for me. Shooting there, I mean, it's just uh, the same with I, me when I write the stories. It's not the induction yeah, story isn't the story I want to write. It's the other it's stuff. Really, yeah, it's not. It's the behind the scenes. It's walking up and down Main Street. All you need to do is walk down Main Street, and there's so many pictures to be made. I try to get up at sunrise and mm. shoot at the hotel, that the lake. Those white Adirondack chairs that sit on the on the veranda, just those beautiful chairs looking out on the lake and telling that story of you know what the Hall of Famers are experiencing while they're there, and just you know a town with one traffic light that has a population of what Jeff? How many people live in Cooperstown? Eighteen hundred. And then descended upon you know some of the biggest um, inductions. Was what was probably Cal's was the biggest, right? Cal Ripkins was how many? Yeah, I was here for that one as well, Cal and Tony. Eighty-three thousand people in a town of eighteen hundred. I mean, how insane! So just seeing and it, to me, it's like such great pictures because everybody's wearing baseball gear. You know, if you if you came from another country and didn't know anything about baseball, you'd be so confused as to what's going on in this <laughs> town. I mean, grown men walking around with bats and jerseys. You know, just so excited you know with an ice cream cone and they're in like their their glory and it's the pictures are so fun the little theater the cooperstown diner i mean i can't get enough pictures of the cooperstown diner and and of course you know the beautiful field that's there i mean it's just so classic and um being able to go back for classic not you know there's no game that happens there just the award ceremony but the pictures are um there's so many to be made and it's really not at the induction site it's just surrounding that all around the weekend and it's the fans uh more than anything else and then if you get a, a dominican fan or you know anybody a puerto rican uh somebody is being inducted to the hall of fame the fans that come and they have their country pride and they bring that to Cooperstown. It makes it so much fun. 
that diner too. I'm, I I may be mistaken. Jeff would know better than me. I'm not. I think it's street address press. Maybe a half in there too, right? I'm not. I'm not sure. It's one of those like thirty six and a half Main Street or something. Like <laughs> I think. I think you're. Go ahead, Gene. Sorry. I was going to say, yeah, I think I think it is at, at 36 and a half. But my favorite picture uh, was Goose Gossage uh-huh. uh, <clears throat> and, Raleigh. Uh, and Raleigh Fingers uh, eating a cheeseburger at the Cooperstown Diner. My all-time oh, favorite picture classic. of Cooperstown. That's a yeah. classic, yeah. You should just put out a book on Cooperstown pictures as well. I mean, I, I'm, I'm giving you more work and you do an great, unbelievable job at the uh, – the, and the lastly, Gene, because it is the give us some of your, I mean, obviously the Domingo Haman perfect game, but give us some some of the shots that you took in Oakland that really mean the most to you. I, you know, I hate to put you on the spot and just you know make you make you think about it right now, but uh, always like to end it with a good last question. And, and for me, this this one does it because in many ways you you know you were the heartbeat of of baseball in oakland for a lot of reason and and, and the other photographers there and uh, t- just give us some thoughts about some shots you took through the years right there at ricky henderson field yeah the, i mean the friendships that were made there uh with, with photographers and with everybody who works there the um security guards the ushers just everybody who puts that game together every night or every day is just so special to me and um but the shots i mean ricky henderson when the ricky henderson field was named after him and he came in just this fabulous suit you know and uh and and you know i asked him to walk and he sashayed across you know the ricky henderson field logo on the field and you know, what a great picture to have of him, you know, just doing that. I mean, the Hall of Famer has Reggie there. Everything in front of that visiting dugout was fantastic. Yeah, the uh, and, and Ricky, Ricky was always one of my favorites uh, going back to when he, uh, you know, when he was with the Padres. Uh, and I used to love talking to him in the Otisaga Hotel. I think Ricky's personality is totally misunderstood, too. He, Ricky is, uh, he's such an engaging individual. Oh, he really is. He was the first person when my for my first book, uh, Grassroots Baseball, where legends begin. I, it was I was showing the amateur game, photographing the amateur game around the world, and pairing those pictures with Hall of Famers who grew up in those regions. Mm. Ricky was the first person I asked to tell his story of what it was like growing up playing baseball in Oakland, and he had such great stories and such a connection to Oakland and the people of Oakland and. You know, that's where he met his wife and she and he played football, high school football and high school baseball. And it's just um, such great stories and real stories, you know, and there's a lot to Ricky. So I agree. I mean, I think, you know, there's the character Ricky that people think, you know, of him as. But the real person is has a lot of depth and and, uh, a terrific guy. If I'm not mistaken, too, I remember talking to him once because early on his career, he was having some hamstring injuries and stuff. But his mother, who I think was a nurse or something to do like that, his mother came up with the protocol basically to keep him healthy. And, if, you know, uh, these teams today can l- learn a lot from Ricky Henderson's mom. Oh, yeah. And she's the one who got him to play baseball. When he told me the story, he said he didn't want to play baseball. He wanted to play football. She got the high, She got the little league coach to pick <laughs> him up and take him to practices. And waiting in the back seat for him was a glazed donut and a hot chocolate, and that's what made him play baseball. 
Isn't that something? It always comes back to food, as you can tell, <laughs> and everything else. But uh, and the I could talk. You know, you guys are the greatest. I could talk all day to you, but I, I got to shut it down, and we got to move on. But uh, thanks again so much, and I'll, I'll let Dave finish it up. Yeah, uh, Jeff or Gene or both. How can we support your three-year effort? Where can we find you guys online? What can our audience do to support what you're trying to do? All you, Jeff. <laughs> Grassroots. Job, Put it on Jeff. He's the- <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we appreciate it. We have some supporters, but we'll take all the support we can get. We are a 501c3 non-for-profit and uh, we are at grassrootsbaseball.org, grassrootsbaseball.org. And you can find uh, a lot of Gene's beautiful imagery there. Also uh, on Instagram at Grassroots Baseball, Grassroots BB on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll be posting some pictures that Gene provided us uh, on Dropbox uh, in promotion with the show all next week. And with the Independence Day coming up July 4th, I think you guys represent Americana more than than any group we know. We appreciate the dynamic duo of Jeff and Gene here. Kevin, do you want to end with your ballplayer question? I'm not sure if they answered that. Did you guys do that last time, uh, what it means to be a ballplayer? That's Jeff's Jeff's question. He's going to answer that one. I don't know. Okay, that. Jeff, I'm going to be, I'll restart it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad Dave reminded me, but basically we always ask all our guests and, and we have such a wide variety of guests that we always get some fascinating and amazing answers, but it's a simple question. And, uh, and, and, and my, my question to you, Jeff Idelson, and it doesn't have to be about you or anything like that, or, or it could be someone you recognized or whatever. What does it mean being a ball player? It's a simple question. What does it mean to be a ball player? But what does that mean to Jeff Idelson, former president of the Hall of Fame, and now involved with such a great project, taking these wonderful pictures throughout the world and country? Well, for me, it means a lot being a ball player. And pe- speaking from personal experience, um, you know, I, I wanted to play in the major leagues when I was a little kid, like most people. I loved Little League. There was nothing nothing better than me than the calendar going to January so I could start to work in my glove and put it under the mattress and, and make sure it was really beat up, wearing that uniform, going to practice and going to games. But then, you know, even later in life, playing in an over 30 league when I realized at age 12 I couldn't hit a curveball like most people. But, you know, keeping it in my life, was important because of the camaraderies, uh, all the lessons that are learned out of playing baseball, like being a good teammate, uh, you know, health, mental aspects. I just love the game of baseball. And I can't think of if, if my body could do it, Kevin, I'd still be playing today because there's no place I'd rather be other than on a diamond uh, in center field. Well, I can relate. I actually turned 70 next week. So um, I'm, I'm thinking about getting, you know, I'm trying to get my, you know, I'm in pretty good shape for 70, but I'd love to get in an over 70 league and dominate. That would be awesome. <laughs> and I have no doubt that you, I have no doubt you, that you could, Kevin, and then you could write the game story afterwards and absolutely kill it. Well, I'd have to get Gene to get a nice shot of me. I'll, uh, oh, you know, I'm we got coming. some college you pictures. Me. You tell me <laughs> where and when I will be there. That's awesome, Gene. But you should, in my college days, I would have been a lot more interesting because I had a big red afro. No way. <laughs> All right, send a pic of that. We need to see it. Okay. Yeah. The, the, Oscar, the, Oscar, the Oscar Gamble of New York. Exactly. That's right. That could be the third book after Women in Baseball. You can chronicle Kevin's reemergence as a baseball star in the over 70 league. I put my money on that. I think we are next, next initiative yep. after women. I love it. Let's I love do it. it. So, uh, Jeff and Gene, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show again. Uh, we'll do everything we can to support your effort with women in baseball, the three-year journey. We'll follow it closely. Anything we can do, let us know. We're, you, 
You tell us first, ask us later. We'll take care of it. And Kevin, thank you so much for doing all you do for the network in this particular show. Um, to our almost 20,000 faithful subscribers, make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We're battling the analytics of the podcast world, much like they do in baseball. We can keep providing you great content every week like we do here on Coaching Kernan and all our shows on the network if you do so. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, that's where you can find us. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I get back to one person live every day on Facebook. I get back to everybody else privately. As the show's going, almost 600 now today I have to get back to. We're in 72 countries now, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there. And I think you do that every week on this show, Kevin. And Jeff and Gene, thanks again for your support here. And we'll continue to support you guys. So grateful for the time. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Cowboy.